So we are uh, second week in our series on the values of Boise Gospel Church, that we are a church that is about the gospel and for our city. Um, those all mean very specific things that we could flesh out endlessly, I'm sure. Um, but that's who we are. And then what we claim is these core values. The, the core values are the things that um, by our commitment to them, we ensure that that first statement, our identity is always true, right? That we remain a true and healthy church, that we remain gospel-centered, gospel-filled, gospel-focused, um, and that we are always for uh, our city and our community. Um, and so our core values are the cross, which is really the governing value that is in the center of all the others. The cross, because we, as we said last week, emphatically and foolishly, we preach Christ crucified. The second value is the family, which we'll talk about today. You notice the family value is expressed by the cross there inside the little house. So if you were curious, uh, the other two values or the other three values are Boise and beyond that. We are a church on mission um, specifically and, and locally on mission in our city. Uh, but that, that is just one part of a mission that we partake in that extends around the earth to make disciples of all nations. And then the last one is simplicity, which is something of our philosophy of ministry. Um, we'll talk about those things in the, in the weeks to come. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the family of God, which is a daunting task to do. And um, this will be a, feel like a little bit different of a sermon in that I'm, I'm not necessarily going to point you to one passage of scripture that we will flesh out in detail. Um, we're taking a bit of a somewhat of a biblical theology of what the family is. And I'm just going to lay out a few things. I'm going to, I'm going to try to describe the, the principle of families, um, the problem that we face when trying to actually live in real relationship as a family, um, something of the solution that is offered to us in Christ. And then last, just a few practices. What, is, what does it actually look like on the ground when we uh, investigate a church family that is living truly as a family? What does that look like? What are some things that we can commit to. So if you wanted to turn to like Genesis 1 through 3, we'll probably go there a few times, but we're going to be in a lot of other places as well. The principle is this, that we were created for relationship. It is built into the very fabric of our being, that we were created for relationship. And we, you've probably heard this a lot of times. I actually want to push us a little bit further back and suggest that the, the idea for relationship, the idea of, of family itself actually, has always had its origin in God himself. God himself defines what family is and why family is good and why relationships are good. So when we say something like God is love, we have to acknowledge that love doesn't exist without relationship. There is no love without a lover and a loved. So Michael Reeves is a, a theologian. He writes uh, the book Delighting in the Trinity, which I recommend to anybody who wants to just ponder the idea of God as, as a trinity, as a, as a relational being himself. He writes this, before God ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son through the Holy Spirit. At the very heart of the universe is a God who is nothing but self-giving love a father who gives himself away to his son, a son who gives himself back again to the father, and their love is so real and so glorious and so vibrant that this love expresses God truly and is the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, theologians have mildly debated this. It's not super controversial. But the fact that when trying to understand the Trinity, we have the relational figures of the Father and the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Everyone's tried to figure what is, what's the Holy, who's the Holy Spirit in that? Is he like a third wheel? You know, is he just kind of like the awkward friend? And, and they say, no, it's, it's actually the love between the Father and the Son. It's so perfect and so pure and expresses everything of who God is so fully that it is itself the person of the Holy Spirit. So they say the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that bonds them together in perfect love eternally um, is, a, is a really, I think, a beautiful way to understand and think about the Trinity. So we can read then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. God said, Let us then make man in our image, according to our likeness. So notice the language there. Who's he talking to? He's not, he's not talking to the angels. He's not talking to the trees and the other animals that he created. He's talking within himself. He's saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he says, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so it says, then God made man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So we were made right out of the gate, right? Right out of the dirt and right out of the rib. We were made relational in the image of an eternally relational God. We are each, I think this is what we need to understand is that we are, we are each image bearers. Individually, we each bear the image of God on us, but we express and enjoy and experience and know that image of God in us most fully through our relationship and union with others. That's why actually later in chapter three, I'm sorry, in chapter two, think about just what's going on here. This is before sin has ever entered the scene. Nothing has been corrupted yet. Nothing is evil or, or, or bad, so to speak. But God can say before any of that has gone wrong, he can say, it is not good for man to be alone. He can acknowledge that even in that perfection, even in that place that he created, that something is not right if man is isolated and is, and is alone. And so what does he do? But he makes a family. He makes a family. So go back to verse 28. God, it says that God blessed them. And he said to them, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish, the birds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth. This means that the concept of fruitfulness and multiplication, the thing that man is constantly striving for, we constantly want to know that our life is fruitful. We might call it successful. We might call it um, fulfilling. But what it is, is we want to know that our life means something and accomplishes something and does something. That's a, that's a longing that God has placed in our own heart. And the context where we work that out the context that he created for us to work out that fruitfulness and that multiplication and ultimately the spread of God's image throughout all of creation is in and through a family. That was his design from the very beginning that the earth would be filled as families bond together in unity in God's presence and are fruitful and multiply from there. So that's the principle. We are created for relationship, not as a clever strategy. It's not like God conceived of some fun way to play with the creatures that he created. Um, he created a world that expresses who he is. And so we are made relational to express the fact that he himself is an, a triune relational God from all eternity. So what's the problem? 
Why is it so hard to live in real, true community and, and family? The easy answer is sin, but let's, let's trace how it ruins our relationships. Read in Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. We've referred to this a lot. I'll say it again and again. Every good theology starts and probably ends in some ways back in the Garden of Eden. But chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard, they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. So, at the beginning here, first and foremost, sin removes us from the communion with God that we were created for. Sin is the thing that ultimately casts us out of God's presence. So Isaiah 59, 2, it says, But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So he's using this language of hiding. This is the, the first instinct of man when he's confronted by God's presence in his own sin is to run and hide. It's to get out. It's to leave. It's to flee God's presence. We don't want that. We know the discomfort, the pain. Likely we sense the death that is coming, okay? So we hide, we run away. And Isaiah says the same thing. Your sins have hidden his face from you. And I love that Isaiah uses relational terms here. He doesn't say sin has created this separation, so now you are under his judgment. He's going to punish you and kill you. He doesn't speak like that. He says the ultimate, the ultimate punishment of your sin is that it's removed you from God's presence, and he doesn't hear you. Have you experienced relationships with people where you're like in the room with them, and you're talking to them, and you've spent hours and hours with them, and, and you feel like actually after all that time, they didn't hear anything that you said. There's nothing more distancing. There's nothing more isolating. There's nothing more corrupt about a relationship between two people than being together and not actually being together. And that's what sin does to, for us with God. It removes us from his presence. But second, sin destroys the communion that we were created to enjoy in God's presence, the communion with each other that we were created to enjoy in God's presence. Now, I think that the way sin destroys relationships is not by ending them. Adam and Eve didn't get a divorce, right? It doesn't end relationships, and it doesn't even remove the instinct for community and relationship that is given to us by God. It's an expression of God's image. That doesn't go away. Instead, once sin enters, Adam and Eve together are removed from God's presence. So first, it says that together they hid themselves. In the passage we read, it says, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So together they flee God's presence. And then it is Adam and Eve together that are banished, ultimately, from the garden of God's presence as, as a judgment. So the desire for community and intimacy remains, but that community, those relationships, are now removed from God's presence. We're not banished and judged all individually. We're sent out as a family to work out all these desires, all these instincts for relationship and intimacy and community. We're, we're, we're banished and expected to now work these things out without the governing goodness of God's presence. Because when we are without God, when we are without God, when the gravity of God's glory is not drawing us and our gaze and our worship up to him, then we will instantly succumb to the gravity of ourself. 
we immediately turn inwards. Adam immediately gets into self-preservation mode, as does Eve. Self ultimately becomes the ultimate God. And when self becomes the ultimate God, everyone else, everyone else, when self is your ultimate God, everyone else is either a threat to our own personal sovereignty and rule and must be avoided or somehow conquered, or they are pawns to be used to serve our selfish, self-serving ends, right? This is how sin corrupts every form of human relationship and intimacy from, from the fights between spouses, some that probably happened this morning, to the most heinous of crimes and abuses and, and everything in between, I just say that is what happens when humanity tries to do something with this instinct for relationship, but has to do it apart from God. And without God is the ultimate solution and is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Okay? But the instinct doesn't go away. And I think we should thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that the impulse for community remains. It is corrupted, yes, and it's distorted beyond recognition oftentimes, but we still see it. And it reminds us, even, even the world's instinct to create communities, even the world's instinct to bind together around something that gives them some sense of security and unity and oneness and and, and I would even acknowledge a sense of salvation from something. Even the world's instinct should give us a, a cause to be thankful because God has left his, his witness in their hearts, pointing them back to the way that they were created and the things that they were intended for. And I think that we can actually long for, as a, as a Christian community, we can long for the day when heaven will be the full and final satisfaction to our longing for community with God, but also with each other in God's presence. So when we talk about being together, the, that mantra, we're better together. I, I understand it. I love it. I think we beat it to death because what we've talked about is it just matters that people are together. And I agree. But if we're not together better, like if our togetherness isn't a higher quality, more pure form of togetherness, then it's nothing. Then it's just a substitute. And, and what we've always been intended to do is was to enjoy the bond, the union of fellowship and, and relationship and intimacy together in God's presence. Can you imagine having any strife between your, with you and your spouse or any strife between a brother or sister while, while Christ is standing there in your presence? Could you ever engage in selfishness or bitterness or any of those things with God standing watch over that, that relationship? You couldn't. It'd be, I think it would be impossible. I think sin actually is our way of actively ignoring the fact that he's right there. It's that in his presence, but not in his presence. It's that with him and not listening, not hearing, not acknowledging him. That's what sin does. And we do that in our arguments and our fights and our, our bitterness, all those things. It's just a way of engaging those relationships and that desire for intimacy while ignoring the one who rules over those things. There's this quote from uh, Vern Poitras, who quite literally has the worst name in Christian theology ever. Uh, he writes, the introduction of sin did not create diversity. Okay? He's pointing out that God uh, made man and woman. They were different and that before sin was ever part of their, the equation. And he says that the introduction of sin did not create diversity, but rather it made it contentious because it took that diversity and removed it from God's presence. And so our differences become points of strife. They become threats to our own self-rule right, and self-sovereignty. Because apart from God, when we are our own gods, the differences of others, they just, they just assault us and threaten us. And so, 
What's the solution? Along comes Christ. I'm just going to read you from, uh, this is a rather long passage, but I just want you to hear all the, those themes and principles and the things that have gone wrong and just hear what Christ has done for us. From Ephesians 2, 12, uh, we'll read from 12 to 19. It says, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant, to the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away, he's speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who has made both groups, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, both groups, one, and he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity from, those two, from the two, from the differences, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. That's the family of God. This is the gospel. Christ didn't consider himself at all. Instead, he rejected himself and he suffered the scorn of men that we fear and the rejection of God that we deserve so that we could be free from the very sin that keeps us from God and so that we could enjoy eternal life in God's presence. And it follows that to truly enter into God's presence immediately unites us in a new way, kind of like a return to the garden with those who have been united to God as well. So Jesus prays in John 17, starting in verse 20. He's praying to the Father. He's praying for his disciples. He says, I pray not only for these, speaking of his, of his disciples specifically, but also for those who believe in me through the word. So there you go. That's all of you. We're included in this prayer now. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Isn't that such a beautiful, glorious reality that we were not saved? We were not saved in a vacuum. We were not rescued from our sin and set on a lonely path to work out our salvation in isolation. We were saved into a family. We have a heavenly father and Christ is our brother and the Holy Spirit uniting us all together in, in bonds of love and, and peace and unity. And so the church is not just a weekly religious tradition. Church is not your ticket to heaven. Church is not just an accountability group that keeps your sinful inward inclinations in check. Church is the family of God that you have been saved into. If you've repented of your sinfulness, then your self dies and you actually become a new creation, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. It says we are reconciled to the Father and by extension we are reconciled to his children. Church is the household of God where brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, children and parents can actually know, truly know, purely know and love one another. Where our differences are no longer contentious, because what we have in common is infinitely greater and more glorious. 
that regardless of your background or your history or your persuasions one way or the other, we have Christ. So one reason we chose, when, when kind of outlining our values, one reason we chose the family, okay, as opposed to other descriptions that we could use to describe the church, is because family language is, the, is easily the most common language used in the New Testament. Christians are regularly, constantly referred to as brothers and sisters. It's not just a, it's not just a cool, slick term that you start your text message with, right? It means something very real. Christians are referred to as brothers and sisters. Our, our, our salvation is called an adoption. We become heirs. We are taught to pray, as Jesus said, our Father. Okay, this is the most common kind of language. But again, before all of that, as we said, family is ultimately who God is. And it's how he's revealed himself. God is a father and a son and a spirit that binds them. Without us, there is still the family of God. And so we're offered adoption into the family of God, which assumes that the family exists apart from us. We're being brought into something, a community, a relationship that already exists and existed before any of us were ever created. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That means God's will has always been to multiply his family. He determined before the world's foundation to share the love that he has for his son with new children that he would adopt. And this idea of adoption is really central to the whole gospel. I don't know if you've even thought about the, maybe, and maybe some of you have experienced this. I'm not aware of any adoptions in the family right now, uh, but maybe some of you have been close to this and experienced this. If not, get on YouTube and just watch adoption ceremonies on YouTube. If you can get through one of those without bawling your eyes out, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, it is so beautiful and so profound to think of of just what's happening right there. When someone puts their stamp of, of, of reception and belonging on a, on a child who otherwise was, was parentless, familyless. Here's a quote from uh, Pastor Mark Dever. He says, think about it. If you're an orphan, you don't adopt parents. They adopt you. If your adoptive parents are named Smith, you now attend the Smith family dinners with the parents and all the children. You share a bedroom at night with the Smith siblings. When the teacher at school calls out attendance and says, Smith, you raise your hand, just like your older brother did before you and like your younger sister will do after you. And you do this not because you decide to play the role of Smith, not because you decide to pretend to be Smith or to hang out with as many Smiths as you can, but because someone went to the orphanage and said, you're gonna be a Smith. And on that day, you became the child of someone and you became the sibling of others. This is what the church is. It's a family of adopted children. That's what we are. So when we talk about what this church is, when we say um, as, as, a, as a church, as Boise Gospel, we care about the family, we can say that we're talking about the church that extends around the globe and actually extends throughout history. The church is made up of all people who are saved and have been saved and adopted into Jesus Christ. And so we believe Actually, that this here, this local church, is a small expression of that larger universal church that stretches around the globe and throughout all of time. And so as a local church, our goal is to reflect the identity and the realities of that universal church. It's to take what is true about the church that Christ is building for himself around the world and to say, how can we express 
and share in that same mission and values here in Boise? How can we take what's real there and make it real and manifest it here locally? So the question is, what does it look like then? What does it look like for Boise Gospel to care about the family as one of our core values? When we say the family, I just want to be clear, we don't mean that we are all about traditional Western family values. This isn't focus on the family radio, although there's valuable stuff there. And as great as all those things are, that's not what we mean. When we say we value the family, we mean the family, capital T, the family of God, which means that we are committed to being that family of God and living out a, a biblical vision for what that family looks like and living it out here. I think this means, this means a, a plethora of things, but I picked seven and I'm just going to run through these really quick. Just practically, what does it mean to be the family? What does it look like to display the realities of God's family? What does it look like for Christians to enter in and say, I belong here, that we are the family communally, Communally, if you read through the Old Testament, there's at least a hundred or more references to, to one another's, right? There's commands throughout, instructions from Paul throughout the New Testament about how to live this life out uh, by interacting and, and loving and caring for one another. And so how do we live those out? How do we actually express those and, and, and are obedient to those commands? I think it means presence and proximity. To say that you belong to a community and that you're part of a family means that you're there that you're seen, that you're known, that, you're, that you are part of that family. If we think about a family uh, that meets in our homes, your own family, a family that doesn't see each other often and share meals together regularly is not going to be a healthy family. If we're going to be obedient to the one another commands, I think it just means we've got to be present. We've got to be here. Second, actively. Okay? Every, member, every member is valuable to the body, and has a, has a role to play, okay? To be a member of God's family doesn't mean to be a, a spectator. It doesn't mean to be sitting around watching. It means to contribute and to be active in, 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 in knowing and being known and getting to know others. Third, it's humbly because self dies with Christ. And so to enter into, the, into God's family means to enter in willing to receive, willing to learn, willing to submit, willing to listen. Fourth, submissively. Family, all families, not just this one that we're talking about, are clearly defined by particular roles. And those roles are expressed by mutual submission, even within your own family. If there was a blurry line between who was the mom and who was the daughter, things would go chaotic. So there are clear roles. There are members and leaders, and, and we express those roles uh, by, I say, mutual submission. Members submitting to leaders, leaders submitting to members, and, and members ultimately submitting to each other. Remember the Great Commission that we outlined before? One of the things we talked about was to truly belong uh, means to recognize that the role of the church is to make disciples uh, through instruction. So in order to engage it, to acknowledge that, to understand that that's true, means to enter in willing to learn. It means submitting to the opportunity to be instructed, setting aside all the things that we think we've got entirely dialed in and just coming with a spirit of humility and submission uh, to learn and to learn from each other. Joyfully is the fifth one. Okay? While I think we are obligated to belong to the family, uh, we are not here strictly by obligation. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his uh, beautiful book, Life Together, it is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in the world. 
and that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. We celebrate community and we enter into it joyfully. And joy also just fills our interactions as we celebrate ultimately when the family grows and when other people have praises to be celebrated. When our family is blessed, we are blessed. We should feel that. But the flip side of that is that we enter sacrificially. Okay, because there's a lot there's a lot to give up to really truly belong to any family. Specifically to be the family of God, we're called to sacrifice our independence, our resources, our time, our comforts. Though the little dying shriveling God of self that is inside us is disappearing. It's still there and it's still encouraging us to avoid unnecessary suffering. And so to enter the family of God means to actively, intentionally mourn alongside our family, be willing to bear under their burdens and to to take them and to, to feel them. To enter the family means to enter sacrificially. And last one, uh, I say covenantally. We are individually, we are bound to God in Christ. I am, and so are you, and so is everybody here that has repented and trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We are bound to God in Christ, and so we should understand that our bond with each other is nothing less than the same Spirit himself. The Spirit that has branded us as adopted and child, children of God is the, same, is the same bond that identifies us as family, as brothers and sisters. And so it's like a wedding. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. We don't get to marry God and not take his kids. We can't accept his adoption and reject our new siblings. If we're committed to Christ, then we are by extension committed to one another. So we mean it. We mean it that we are family. I I could tell you stories, both, both pain and healing and profound blessing that I've experienced in in seeing and understanding that you, you are my family. You are my family. And it's from actually this family of God that, that is forming here that we are sent out as missionaries. And we'll talk about the mission of the family in Boise and around the world and acknowledge that there are times when God sends us out. I've thought actually about um, before that in planting a church, I love and hate the idea of being a church that is in a constant state of pain because we are sending out people that we love and people that we, we care about in our family, sending them out to other places to, to, to reach people and to engage in the mission of God in other places. So I'm aware of the fact that this isn't necessarily going to be the same for decades and decades. And I'm also aware of the fact that there's other circumstances in life that make that difficult. But this is, this is my family. If God sends somebody out, we will send you out proudly but with tears and until that day let's just enjoy being the family of God together in all its fullness growing old together and inviting others to join us we're going to finish in a second by um, reciting the Lord's prayer together if you're allowed to have a favorite part of the prayer uh, for me it's the our father part one, because I get to say it with you. But more importantly, because together we are saying it with Christ. Don't forget that. That he's the one who invited us to pray, Our Father. That Jesus himself 
is part of the hour. And it's actually why we can. It's actually it's the, it's the primary reason that we are able to pray this together, to live life truly together, filled and bound together by the Holy Spirit, because Christ has invited us there. Christ has given us these words uh, to pray together. So, would you, guys, would you guys pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.